weird thing is, now I'm exactly where I want to be. I got my dream job at Cornell, and I'm still just thinking about my old pals. Only now they're the ones I made here. I wish there was a way to know you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. Hey Kairos, my name is Danny Householder. I'm the campus pastor at Hope Ames. I also get to be a part of this, and I'm so glad to be with you here tonight. Those of you who are with us in this room here in Ames, uh, hi to you who are on the floor. Hey, what's up guys in the balcony? So glad that you're here too. Also want to say hi to our friends in Iowa City. There's a camera in the back center. If you can see it, turn around and say hi Iowa City on the count of three. One, two, three. Hi Iowa City. So good to be with you all. Glad that we can join together. Uh, you saw in that clip Andy Bernard saying something that is very wise from the deeply theological sitcom The Office, my favorite show of all time. He says, I wish that there was a way to know that you were living in the good old days before they're gone. He's got a good point. It's nostalgia, right? It's that experience when you're simultaneously feeling the emotion of remembering and being grateful for what you had and also feeling sorry for what you've lost. It's the good old days. It's the good old days. It's thinking about those times when it was before you felt the responsibility of the world. It's thinking about those times before you lost somebody. It's about thinking about those times when someone else was in control. The good old days. And we think back on those times and we think that they're perfect. But of course they're not. Because today is not perfect either. We know. If we really looked at the details, we would know that those days weren't perfect. If Andy and his office mates could look back, they would know those days weren't necessarily perfect. There were hardships. But here's what they had. There's a group of diverse people, a lot of outcasts even, who came together as one and they experienced the monotonous, the tedious, the highs, the lows, everything of life. It's the good old days. See, in the good old days, even though there were problems, even though there were issues, we had something that could get us through. Maybe you had someone who could get you through. Something that was good enough to overwhelm the bad. It's been happening for a while. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10, there's a verse where the author is writing to a group of people and it says, thinks back on the early days when you first learned about Christ. It's writing about the good old days. I don't think that it should be a surprise that the good old days is something that we've been dealing with and thinking about for a long time. But check out what these good old days were like for these people back then. The person says, Hebrews chapter 10, in the next verse, he says, think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Don't you remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible sufferings? It goes on to say that many of you, you suffered by having things taken away from you. You were thrown in jail. And he's saying, these are your good old days. Don't you remember those good old times when everything you loved was taken from you? Man, what about those times, huh? What did they have? What did they have that we're missing? If you pay really close attention to the text there, you see that they're not in it alone. They suffer but not on their own. The author is almost adamant to point out, don't you see, you were never on your own. When you suffered, you suffered with other people. When you saw other people suffering, you joined them in their suffering, it also says in Hebrews chapter 10. 
adds something that we're kind of missing today. Jesus points this out, and you heard this in the reading today. When Jesus is praying for us on the last night of his life, You know, when somebody's in those last moments of their life and they're dying, they become very vulnerable and you start to know what really matters to that person. Well, Jesus is having this intimate prayer with the Father and he's having this prayer and he knows he's about to die and so we're having a very close inner look at what's happening inside Jesus. And he talks about you and he talks about me and he talks about what he wants for us and he says, I pray that they would be one. I pray that despite the bad, they would have something good that would overwhelm those things. What is that thing? I pray that they'd be one, that they would be together. And so now again, when we look at Hebrews chapter 10, we can start to understand they had something good that overwhelmed the bad and allowed them to look back and say, the good old days. Because they were one. It's not so easy to be one all the time. We're in a series that's called I Know You Are, But What Am I? And sometimes we don't want to be one with other people. And so when we hear people say like, oh, all you people, it's just so nice to see how you guys get along and you're one. But then there's that one person in the group you don't really want to associate with. You're like, oh, no, I know they are, but I'm not. But Jesus' hope for you is to be one with people. To be together, to have that community. And we desperately need this, don't we? I mean, we're living in times that are very tense, and so it's not easy to be, very e- to be very one with one another sometimes. In case you didn't know, there was an election last night, right? Everybody's feeling really good about it. Everybody's agreeing wholeheartedly on everything. We're all just one, right? No, we're not. We're lacking togetherness, and it's spreading us apart, and it's dividing us, and it's causing deep loneliness. Did you know that even before the pandemic hit, there was a study that came out that said 42.6 million adults in the United States are dealing with chronic loneliness? How does that happen? I read another study that said with young adults, and I'm not pointing the finger at you, I am in the category of young adults as well. It says that young adults, only 18% of young adults spend more than 10 hours a week spent in quality time with friends. 64 percent of young adults spend 10 hours on their phone a day. It's kind of a superficial kind of togetherness, a superficial kind of oneness, but it's not oneness. It's not togetherness. So then the numbers skyrocket in the 70 percent, in the 70s for percentages, young adults who are dealing with loneliness. Seven out of every 10 people in this room are dealing with loneliness. We're lacking that unity. We're lacking that oneness. And no wonder when Jesus has this prayer, he says, I pray that they would be one. But then he continues on in the book of John chapter 17. He says just a little bit immediately after that, I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. He's saying to the Father, so that the world will believe you sent me. So what he's saying there is, it'd be so wild if they were one. It would be so crazy. It would be so mind-blowing to every single person that if they saw that those kinds of people could be one with one another, they would have to believe that's God. They would have to know, yes, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, not because of the miracles they perform, not because their theology is so amazing, not because they know right from wrong and, and, and accomplish those rights and wrongs all the time, No, it's because they were able to be one. 
Because we live in a world where we know that's super hard. That's almost impossible. We're way more tempted to hate people than love people. There are the obvious examples of hatred in the world. There's a psychologist who's considered like the pioneer of of the psychology of hatred. And it's funny because hatred is something that, quite frankly, we all deal with, but it's not that, it's not investigated that often. It's not studied that often. But this one guy, he put up this spectrum of hatred. On one one end of the spectrum of hatred, there's the obvious stuff. You know, there's the kind of things that kill people. It's genocide based off of what someone looks like or where they come from or how they think or what they believe. But then as you go down this spectrum of hatred, somewhere you also run into the people who have those thoughts, but they don't act on them. I mean, at least they're not acting on it, right? They have some sort of self-control. And then you continue down the spectrum of hatred, and on the far side, you have people who have implicit bias. Implicit bias are the things that you do that you don't know that you're doing, but it's, it's prejudice against other people. It's the way that you tense up when someone that you're not familiar with comes around you. It's the way that you assume someone's up to no good just because of how they look, where they come from, what they think, what they believe. It's not acting out on it, but it's on the spectrum of hate. And you know what the really mind-blowing thing about this is? Psychologically, what's happening in someone's brain when they have the kind of hatred that leads to genocide is the same thing psychologically that's happening in someone's brain when they've got implicit bias. I read that and I'm like, whoa, that's messed up. We are tempted. We are tempted to hate. And it's not just some sort of theory like, oh yeah, we should just get hate out of the world, then we could all go around and hold hands and sing kumbaya, and we'd be really happy, 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 happy. No, it's messing with our heads. Even more importantly, it's tearing our souls apart. Because this is not the way that God designed us to live. God designed us to live together. Together. And we're missing that. We're tempted to reject people. And let's be honest, sometimes it's because people reject us. Sometimes we hate people because they're bigoted. They're backwards-minded thinkers. And it's still hatred. Psychology Today came out with an article that said the biggest reason for loneliness in the world is pride. Because we think we've got an idea of the way that the world is supposed to work. So we develop non-negotiables. Non-negotiables are the things that if someone else doesn't agree with, they're out of your life. So we roll off into loneliness. How many non-negotiables do you have in your life? As Christians, according to Jesus' prayer, we need to eliminate non-negotiables in our lives. And I know that's hard. Here's the problem with the pride that we have, and we think that we have it all figured out, and so then we can't be around people who think other than us. For one, it's lazy rather than to get to know someone and love someone and perhaps even love them out of their hatred, we just dismiss them. But number two, we're missing out. 
We're missing out on the opportunity to learn from somebody else. If I only spend time around people who think like I do, talk like I do, learn like I do, teach like I do, I'm missing out. So I'm a Lutheran, right? This is Lutheran Church of Hope. I was born and raised Lutheran. I went to a Lutheran college. I worked at a Lutheran Bible camp. I interned at a Lutheran church. I'm now a Lutheran pastor. My family is a bunch of Lutherans. We had a dog when when I was younger. She was baptized Lutheran. That's a joke. That'd be super weird. Interestingly, I went to a Baptist seminary. If you're not familiar with that, there's different denominations, different branches of Christianity. I'm a Lutheran, and I went to a Baptist branch of Christianity for seminary. And I learned from professors who thought differently than I did, who came up with different conclusions than I did theologically. You know what the interesting thing was? These professors that I was learning from and I disagreed with, most of them, take that back, all of them had read more than I did, written more than I had written, and they were smarter than me. And we disagreed on things, but do you know what we could agree on? We could agree on this one thing that made us one, and it is that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. And there are a million other things that could divide us. I'm telling you, there are a million other things. And those things are worth discussing and worth having serious conversations about. They're worth marching for. They're worth protesting for. They're worth naming as unjust. And yet, if we can agree that Jesus Christ is Lord, we have a bond that is deeper. And it's going to take work to be in relationship. It's going to take work to be together. But we have a God who on the last night of his life is in a garden. He prays. He prays. God himself prays that we would do it. I don't think I'm naive when I say it's possible. That we don't have to split apart. That we don't have to reject one another. That we don't have to cut people out from our lives. When I was living in Minnesota, my best friend was 50 years older than me. I've told you about this guy before. His name is Mark. I want to tell you another story today about Mark. Here are a couple of pictures of Mark and I. Mark Mark and I are different. First off, we're different in age. Um, Mark is a short, little, quirky guy. Man, I love this guy. I love him. We were so close because I worked as the morning custodian at the church that I was interning at. And every morning I was supposed to be there at 6.30, but I'd show up about 6.33 or 6.35. But every time that I'd get there, Mark would be waiting outside the doors for me because he showed up every single morning to help me. Every single morning. So I'd open the doors, be like, hi, Mark. I'd be like, hi, Danny, how are you? We'd get it off. We'd, you know, we just talk it out for, for hours. I started to get to know Mark's story, and I, started to get, and I was able to get to know Mark. And as I got to know Mark, I understood that Mark has been rejected from so many circles in his life. I've never really been able to pinpoint it, but Mark has some different abilities. And Mark had been rejected and outcasted from friends, from family, from groups of people that should have kept him around. But Mark talks about these people as if they're best friends. There's one person in particular that Mark told me about that he had written to many times over the last, like, 20 years or so. I mean, written to this person over and over and over again, and this person never once wrote back. The last time that Mark and this person had talked was when the person said, I don't want you in my life anymore. And yet, however differently abled Mark is, there's something about Mark where he's unable to reject people. 
And so Mark continues to talk about this guy like he's a hero. I'm like, Mark, why don't you hate this person? I actually asked him one time, like, Mark, why are you so nice about that person? Why don't you hate him? And Mark said something that I'll never forget. I don't know if he made it up or if he had heard it from somewhere else, but I'll never forget it. He said, because people are grapes, not marbles. So people are grapes, not marbles. You see, marbles and grapes, they've got some stuff in common, right? Like they're similar in shape and size. But a marble? Well, a marble and a group of marbles, they gather, maybe for moments, but it's really only ever by accident. And they bump off one another. And they agitate one another. Until eventually they just roll off into some nook or cranny of loneliness. Alone. The grapes? Grapes are gathered intentionally. They grow organically together from the same vine. Some grapes are on the far left and some grapes are on the far right if you catch my drift. But they're the same vine. And every single piece of their lives intertwine with one another. People are grapes, not marbles. Jesus says in John chapter 15, he says, remain in me, because I am the true vine, and you are the branches. Are we living that way? Or are we living like marbles, hard-hearted, easily agitated, bumping into one another until we've rolled away into utter loneliness? Mark told me, I think Christians need to be grapes. We gotta cut the non-negotiables out of our lives. You know, a good test to see if we're being marbles or grapes is found again in Hebrews chapter 10, where it says this. It says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. When was the last time you sat down and deliberately thought of ways to motivate someone else? When was the last time that you sat down and looked through somebody's social media and scanned through all their pictures and thought of all the things you hate about them? Which one have you done more recently? I imagine what it must be like to sit down at a desk and be like, okay, so Jeff, Jeff, I'm going to tell Jeff he's got great shoes. All right, uh, Kathy, uh, Kathy, I'm going to tell Kathy she's got a great sense of humor. It sounds crazy, right? When was the last time that you deliberately sat down to think about ways to motivate somebody else? Got to be grapes. Not marbles. We are connected whether we want to be or not. I know it's hard. I know that there are people out there who are racist, who are xenophobic, who are homophobic, who are sexist. And it's really hard not to hate them sometimes. We don't get to hate anybody. 
One of the most sobering verses in the entire Bible comes from 1 John chapter 4, and it messes me up every time I read it. Anyone who loves God is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Oh boy, that's clear. Hey, love people, you're a child of God. I'm seeing that it's becoming, um, over the last 24 hours, it's, it's become very popular and now pretty much wildly accepted to share different posts that are coming dangerously close to saying, it's okay to cut someone out of your life because they voted differently than you. Because, you know, it, it's not a political issue, it's, it's moral and it's ethical. Christians don't get to hate people who have bad morals and ethics. And if you don't love those people, you don't know God. Let me be clear. If you are being abused, and if someone is hurting you, the best thing you can do is to create distance and create separation. But if you are safe, and it comes down to a matter of difference of opinion, even if it comes down to a matter of morals and ethics, God has given you power to put love into that person's life. Keep attached to the vine of life and see what kind of love in life God can produce through you. Those grapes that are shriveling up and it's very clear that they're shriveling up and that grape has no idea. You're turning into a raisin. Sometimes love is very clear and bold and love sometimes even hurts. Because it's honest. But if you can't love the person, you don't know God. And that really messes me up because there are times recently when I've had to stop myself because I've wanted to unfriend that person. I've wanted to, I wanted to keep them out of my life. And then I read this and I'm like, whoa, God, I don't know you right now. If you don't love, you don't know God. Now receive this hope. Because just a few verses later in 1 John chapter 4, it tells us about why we can love. This is real love. It's not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a, sin, as a sacrifice to take away our sins. I might think that there are people out there that I'm morally and ethically superior to. But the difference morally and ethically between me and that person is minuscule, is infinitely minuscule compared to the difference between God and me. And yet God decides to love me. He decides to love me first. He initiates the love. And if I can live in that love, such love has no fear. The reason why people hate, the reason why people are all sorts of phobic and ists, they're afraid of people. They're scared. Their hatred comes from fear because perfect love casts out fear. And so fear is created, or fear creates hate. Fear doesn't create love, fear creates hatred. 
And so if I'm going to receive God's love and embrace God's love and know God's love, I don't have to be afraid of anybody. And I can bring other people back into that love. To remind them of the God that's still here for them. And seriously, part of the reason why we hate is because we get competitive with people and we're worried, well, if they're in, then I'm out. And more cake for them means less for me. Not with God. If God is infinite and if God is eternal, you don't get any less because somebody else gets in. A lot of the times the reason why we reject people and we pretend like they're marbles instead of grapes is because we are worried that they're going to take what we want and we're fighting so hard to get in with whatever crowd we're trying to get into. If that's a group on social media that you're trying to impress by the posts that you put out there so you can get a few likes, keep your you know, uh, societal image up, who are you really trying to impress? You think about that kid who, who grows up and they get interested in the wrong crowd and they start hanging around with them and, and then they start, they, 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 one thing leads to another and they're living into a life of crime. What was it? It's because the kid just wanted in somewhere. The kid just wanted to be accepted somewhere. And we think about it, we see it even in the academic world. Sometimes people aren't even excited about the things that they're learning. Instead, they're just trying to impress the other academics in their circle. I just want to be in. I just want to be accepted. God promises you, you don't have to do anything for me to love you and for me to accept you. I already do love you. God does not live on the spectrum of hate. But there is room for all in his outstretched arms of love. And Back in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, it promises this. God can be trusted to keep his promise. You are in with God. You don't have to fight for that. You are in with God. And there are those moments when you think, oh, I'm alone. I got rejected. I got cut out. When I was moving away from Minnesota, one of the last things that I did was I had a conversation with Mark. We drove together in the car, and I was dropping him off at his apartment, and I had to tell Mark, hey, Mark, I'm moving. I'm leaving, and I knew this was going to hurt really bad, and so I'm trying to get the words out. I'm talking to you. Mark and I gotten so close. I'm like, hey, man, I'm so, just so you know, I'm, ah, uh, ah, uh, because I was worried that he was going to think I was rejecting him too. And I told him, Mark, I'm, I'm moving, man. And Mark put his head down. He looked down for a second. I'm like, oh, no. I'm out with Mark. He lifts his hand up and he puts it on my shoulder. And he goes, I'm still here. I still can't figure out if he meant physically, I'm still here in Minnesota and you need to come back and visit me. But but he's still there. He wasn't kicking me out of his life. I sure wasn't kicking him out of mine.
And I experienced glory in that moment. I'm not exaggerating this. I experienced glory in that moment. The Bible tells us that three things last forever, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. There is no distance that could be put between us. I could kill off love, faith, and hope. There's no issue that will outlast love. There's no crime that will cause wounds that will outlast love. Because the only things that last forever are faith, hope, and love. Hatred will not. We can be one. So Jesus continues in that prayer in John chapter 17. He says, on the next slide, I've given them the glory you gave me so that they can be one. I'm in them as you are in me. They are infinitely accepted, infinitely welcome. You're already in. You don't need to compete with anybody. You don't need to kick anybody else out. There is room for all in the outstretched arms of God's love. So one more verse. We can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. A place where you're accepted, a place where you're loved. Let me give you just one more quick story about Mark, okay? Mark, I knew, was about 50 years older than me, but I never knew his real age. He's one of those guys who could be 40 or 90. Like, you really wouldn't know. As he always told me, I'm nimble like a cat. He told me that it was because he constantly practiced yoga. And he said, you want to see yoga? I'm like, yeah, sure. He goes, this is yoga. Mark was telling me, he's like, hey, my birthday's next week. I'm like, well, cool, Mark. How old are you going to be? Seriously, I had no clue. He's like, I'm going to be 72 or something like that. I'm like, are you going to have a birthday party? He said, I've never had a birthday party before. 72. Nobody ever thrown him a birthday party. Nobody welcomed him in. Mark's a great. And word got around that vine. And on his birthday, early in the morning, dozens of people were waiting for him at the church. Almost to say, like, you're in, man. You're in. brought a cake out to him. They sing happy birthday to him. He blows out the candles and he's just in shock. Like, Burr. Someone's about to cut the cake. He goes, wait, stop. Don't cut the cake. It's the loudest I've ever heard Mark talk. He goes, can I, 
can I just keep it so I can freeze it? So I can look at it? Have you ever seen someone when they finally see that they're in, that they're one? they've got a good that can overwhelm the bad? You've got that power to distribute that kind of love. To see those kinds of miracles. And that's the one when people see it, they'll say, that's, that's God. When we're one. One. 